You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Queer the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski, who is still glowing, even though I don't even see him. But I feel the glow, the warmth, the incredible good spirits that surround him as he has spent that last weekend in Mars, Pennsylvania, really reveling in Monster Bash and all the good feelings that, that you talked about last week about that. I know that there were a lot of highlights, but... Uh, to me, you know, the main highlight for me when hearing about what you did in Monster Bash was the fact that uh, you went to see a film that starred a very famous actor who was in many, many monster films. Uh, he, the, 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 really the person who is, uh, who developed the Wolfman character, Lon Chaney Jr., and you saw him in a role that you wouldn't have expected. This was the unexpected. Yitzchak Kolakowski experience was you watched of mice and men, right? I, I well, I was I was planning when I saw that it was being shown. I said, well, I better watch that because this way I'll have something to talk about that's a little bit more highbrow. I'll, I'll get into your territory, the out of the B movies and into into the real A movies. Oh yeah, this was a film that was nominated for Best Picture, and it was it was nominated among some really great films. Everyone knows 1939 is uh, movie aficionados refer to it as the ultimate year of film, the best year of of all time of of films. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, Gone with the Wind won Best Picture that year, but Wizard of Oz was was nominated. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was nominated among. I think there were I think there were eight Best Picture nominations that year, and of my one of them. I think back then they had more nominations every year for for Uh Best Picture. Right, but sort of Mice and Men, you know, it it was a contender of, uh, among several several great films. So, so let's just give a little background before you, we talk about the film itself. It, it was based, of course, on a novella written by John Steinbeck, just two years before the film came out. Right, and and when Steinbeck wrote this novella, which is a little bit over a hundred pages, he wrote it really with the intent to make it into a play. He almost, it's almost like if you read the. Uh, the novella, you could almost see the stage direction and a play developing. And this little novella 
was a pretty successful, or at least critically successful, uh, Broadway stage play, and then moved to Los Angeles. And it was there that Cheney assumed the role of Lenny, the Lenny Small, Leonard Smalls, the developmentally disabled fellow who was making his way together with his friend George. Steinbeck was writing at the same time the the great American novel, The Grapes of Wrath, which, of course, was turned into a film the next year. But Steinbeck was really obsessed with what was occurring in the United States. The Great Depression had altered the trajectory of success for so many. And the meltdown after the stock market crash and the Great Depression had sent really shockwaves of change throughout the country. And although in the beginning of the century, there was almost this tremendous optimism, but when the economic despair started to spread through the areas, especially what was in the South, in the areas that were known as the as the Dust Bowl, so there was this, this migration of people moving towards something. Steinbeck was enchanted almost in a tragic way of everyone's dreams trying to be fulfilled people who would who who had lost everything were hoping that somehow there was a sliver of hope by moving towards the pacific towards the west towards what was becoming the dream factories in 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 california the places where there was still verdant hills and growth and production and fruit and vegetation and you know the grapes of wrath of course is 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 the odyssey that family and the tragedy. And I think of Mice and Men is sort of like a little sliver of that same story. I, 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 it makes me think, I wonder, you know, what great stories will come out of this age? We, I don't think we have anyone like that composing these types of stories, you know, telling the stories of, of the pandemic and all these things. They're not captured in the same way. You're right, because I, I think one of the problems, Yitzhak, is that Although Steinbeck was definitely a person, a, a believer in social change, you know, you think about the Grapes of Wrath. After Steinbeck wrote that novel, the United States government in the uh, the in the Roosevelt administration changed many laws and regulations dealing with how migrant workers needed to be treated. The descriptions that, and again, Steinbeck himself were, uh, you know, wasn't always a successful uh, writer. He worked in those fields. He he lived among the people. When he went to gather information for his books, he lived that life. Even, you know, the character that I mentioned, uh, Lon Chaney's character, Lenny, who we're going to talk about, Steinbeck based him on a real person, that uh, a real development disabled person that Steinbeck knew. So, yes, the the Steinbeck's novels were meant to grab you, they were meant to shape you and change you, and they did change society. And he was, in many ways, one of the most important writers of the late 1930s and 1940s. I, th- I think Hollywood recognized this afterwards, and I think he did a little bit of screenwriting uh, in Hollywood in the 40s. And he never really, you know, recaptured that 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 level of prominence. He he wrote a number of very important books in the 1950s. I think uh, we've talked about uh, one of the film adaptations of that book, of course, which is East of Eden. And I mentioned, you know, which, of course, is one of James, I think it was James Dean's 
um, first, uh, the first film that James Dean was in. But, you know, the type of incredible influence of an author, you're correct. I have to tell you, before we talk about the film, that when you told me this morning that how this was the film you saw, I mentioned to you how, you know, Steinbeck has, has been a searing presence in my life since I was about 11 years old, maybe even earlier. And uh, by the time I went to yeshiva at, at the age of 13, I already I had already um, uh, read much of what Steinbeck had written. And I continued, you know, throughout my uh, high school days to really enjoy reading Steinbeck. And he and Sinclair Lewis, who was one of the other premier American novelists of the, of the, of the day, were seminal influences on my artistic and I think my whole outlook towards the outside world, the cynicism of Sinclair Lewis, um, and I would say the romantic lyricism of Steinbeck. But but I think, you know, one of the things you see from uh, Of Mice and Men and, and, and The Grapes of Wrath and Cannery Row and the other books of that era is that Steinbeck recognized that human beings are in a... Uh, struggle, a struggle to survive and a struggle to be understood, a struggle to be known, a struggle for comfort, the lies that we tell ourselves, the smallness that encumbers us. You know, Steinbeck is not a fun read. It's not like a Tom Clancy uh, super tech novel or an Ian Fleming book like we spoke about with Tom Shabilla. Steinbeck is somewhat morose. <laughs> it's uh, lacrimose. I would say, and you know, the stories are tragic. I mean, I was, I, I wasn't surprised, Yitzchak, that you said to me the earlier off pod that as you continued to watch this film, there were tears in your eyes by the time the film had ended. It's never a surprise with me. I I, I cry pretty easily. <laughs> My kids will will admit, but it was, but uh, I, I, I probably wasn't crying as strongly as I do with some other films or music or things. But I, it was. I, it, it stuck with me and it, it really made me think about, you know, a lot of people who I know that I work with, people who are incarcerated, people who are uh, mm-hmm. in, in mental hospitals and how they're struggling to, and they, you know, working with their dreams and, and you know, their obsessions. And uh, I know plenty of people like all of these characters in real life. Yes, not, not just Lenny. So let's just, set, let's just set the tone a little bit. Um, you have these two sort of, you know, they they seem to be on the run, Lenny and George. Uh, they they are on the run because because George got in trouble. And- yeah, George, right? They're they're on the run because George has taken Lenny under his wing. Lenny is a huge person in the novel. I'm not sure if Lon Chaney himself was of such great stature. Uh, they, he was, but they certainly made him look bigger. In the movie, I mean, he's next to Burgess Meredith, who was not a big person, right? So, yeah, so so there, it wasn't hard to indicate that he was the largest person around. But you're right; that's part of the camera techniques that Lewis Milestone, the director, used uh, to emphasize this point. And they are on the run because because Lenny has a penchant for soft things, and he is a man, however, a man with a child's mind and a man's body. So although what he likes is to just pet soft things, 
he can't, as much as he enjoys little puppies and other soft rabbits to to pet and feel the, how warm they are, he also feels an attraction towards women. And um, they are on the run because the authorities or the people at the last mining, the, at the last work camp suspect that Lenny is, or at least was uh, for attempted of a rape of a girl. So as they come to this new place, uh, they are met by a whole number of characters that Steinbeck is able to develop in his, in the book and in the, in the play. And they're brought to life really wonderfully in the, in the film. You have not only Slim and Candy, but you also have, I guess, the two most evil people in the, in the, in the film, which is Curly and May. Yeah. Curly is the son of the ranch, uh, the rancher's owner, clearly someone with something like a Napoleon complex. And it would seem a little bit more than that. I always got the impression when I read the book or the novella that the reason why his wife, who is very attractive and super flirtatious with all the ranch hands, is because she's not being satisfied by Curly. The Curly is either impotent or definitely is considered unattractive uh, to her. To her, and I mean, obviously in the film, this is after the Hayes Code. There really is no clear indication of that. You know, I think if the movie had been, and the book had been written, you know, seven years earlier, nine years earlier, if it was something from 1931, 32, uh, they probably would have been. I think the play that. actually had a number of terms which, which were which would qualify as pure vulgarity. I'm pretty sure, and there was the censors wow. worked. The censors worked very hard. Eugene Solo, one of our tribe, was the screenwriter who cleaned it up a little bit, but still tried to retain the idea. And I think even after the Hayes Code, the truth is, May doesn't even seem. I, I would I, again. I never read the book. I never saw the play. I'd assume in the book and the play, she is more flirtatious. Here, it just seems that she's just bored. You know that there is more to life. It, it almost seems, I, you know, I, I didn't even really feel it that it was that she was that she wasn't satisfied in the bedroom as much as that she wasn't satisfied outside. That she kind of felt herself as just someone who was, uh, you know, a slave to this to this guy that she married, and she and she was looking for her independence. She was looking for for friendship for for something. I I, I almost I I really had from the movie. I I felt the the opposite, you know, not that he was impotent, but rather that he was just using her and that was it. And that, you know, she was looking for more romance and not, and not just to be an object mm-hmm. and not even romance, but also, also just social. That That's how it's really presented is that she was just looking for, to socialize and for someone to talk to. And there were no women around for to socialize with, meaning if, if she wasn't there on a ranch with only men, she probably would have had a social life with the other women around, but there were no women around for, for her to socialize. With. As the only woman on the ranch, she would obviously generate feelings and the attractions of all the men. Not really, because they were so afraid of her husband. They wanted nothing to do with her. Even if they felt an attraction to her, they, they, Express that that attraction of you're dangerous. You're, I, I, we're not playing with fire. But the reason it's fire is 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 again because 
if you do s- stick your hand to the honeypot, the trap of Curly, her husband, is going to snap on you. And right. he, of course, was someone who was a sadist in a certain way. He's someone who enjoyed hurting people. He was looking, he was looking for fights. He liked to pick fights. Yes. And, and again, I think part of it is the Napoleon complex. He's obviously a smaller person. And I think it's a big, it's a, he might have beat her as well. You know, that's not also not really so indicated. She, she says very openly that she doesn't like him. That I don't know if she says at any point she hates him, but she says several times that she doesn't like him and she wants to leave. Well, she's fascinated by the fact that somebody has crushed his hand because when there, when there is a uh, altercation that occurs, it turns out that uh, Le- Lenny, uh, because of his strength, is able to crush Curly's hand. And I think when she comes to investigate who did it, it, it's clear that we're talking here about a metaphor. And what becomes clear in the dialogue is that Lenny and George would like to be able to escape and to find a farm of their own, perhaps with uh, with Candy or one of the other characters. There is uh, really, in, in many ways, a, a groundbreaking character in the film that is a character, of course, from the original book and, uh, and play, yeah, and that is Lee Whipper, uh, a African-American uh, actor who was in the original Broadway version of the play. And he reprised his role in this film. And the film makes very clear that there is a racist negative attitude. In many ways, it's a very progressive statement. We re- we realize that Crooks is more, in many ways, a very well-read, intelligent person. And yet he is, he cannot even sleep with the other ranch hands. He has to sleep in the stable with the animals. And he uh, is one of Lenny's confidants. And he, of course, uh, becomes part of this dream as well. This dream that George and Lenny and and Candy, uh, they share this idea that perhaps they will eventually be able to have enough money that they'll be able to buy their own little ranch and raise the types of rabbits and other things that uh, they dream of. And um, you sort of know, Yitzhak, that uh, none of this could happen. This was America in the most difficult times of the Depression and the type of cruelty that was exercised by people against each other, which is indicated by Curly. And even as you say, you might think that May is very sympathetic, but clearly she knows the power that she has. She realizes, I think, uh, what she can do, and she's a selfish person. Now, Lenny almost can't help being who he is. In today's time, when we talk about the dumbly disabled people, you know, Lenny would be be able to would have been gotten much more support. You know, had Lenny been born, had the story happened forty years later, even in a in in, in the Dust Bowl, there would have been uh, treatments, there would have been homes, there would have been places where health professionals could have treated Lenny in a way that he could interact safely. As it was, as the way the period was, Lenny had to fend on his own. And uh, as much as George tries to protect him, George, I think when he, when he, when he starts feeling good about himself, I think he leaves Lenny. And that's when trouble occurs because that's when May, when May looking for the person who has crushed Curly's hand finds Lenny and uh, Lenny is attracted to her. And Lenny 
she asks him if Lenny wants to stroke her hair. And of course, her hair is soft, like 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 the fur of a puppy dog or of a rabbit. And this leads to uh, Lenny, because of his great strength, uh, to hold on to her too tightly. So after Lenny inadvertently kills May, and George comes back and discovers what has happened, it's clear that there's now going to be a lynch mob centered on the murderer. Of course, Lenny didn't want to do that, anything like that, but there's no way this could be described. The attitude towards persons of limited mental faculty wasn't one that they would allow Lenny off the hook. So as you pointed out, Yitzhak, that earlier in the, in the film, they talk about a dog having to be put down. And of course, the owner of the dog felt that he didn't want the doctor or someone else putting it down. He felt that if something had to die, it should be put down by someone who loved him. As was said earlier in the film, uh, it was it's the person who loves the animal should be the one who put it down. So in that sense, the in the you know the as the film ends, spoilers here, George has to unfortunately do the deed. He doesn't want it to be done by Curly and his mob. And you know, it, it ends really, you know, with this inevitable sense of fate which is really what the the title of the the piece is of mice and men from robert burns's poem that this is the fate of man whether it's a mouse or a man this is what occurs the the vicissitudes and tribulations that are heaped upon us things that we can't control and especially for americans during this period americans of the underclass who weren't able to move forward the crushing heel of fate. And, you know, that's really, in a way, the way you know, the film ends. Although, of course, there's a, just like The Grapes of Wrath, there's a, an appeal for change, perhaps a, a, a way that we should have more compassion and understanding for each other. You know, you know, uh, uh, now, even before I was introduced to Steinbeck, and I think this is f- true for yourself as well, I knew this, this character, this character of Lenny, which way did they go, George? Which way did they go? Which way did they go? Right. And this, of course, was from the Warner cartoons where they would have a very large, silly dog and a smaller dog that sort of was the short dog that would be pushing the big dog around. And of course, the big dog was the muscle who with very little brain. And I think they were both after instead of the soft, tiny rabbit. They were after this wiseacre Brooklyn denizen type rabbit known as Bugs Bunny. And that is where uh, that character, that dog who speaks like Lenny, uh, showed up. And, and the trope appeared other times in the Looney Tunes cartoon. Sometimes, you know, after Bugs Bunny would get hit on the head. That's he right. Would... All of a sudden he would start talking like Lenny. We, we realized that this is really a sort of a cruel way to sort of make fun of people who, are, who have diminished mental capacities, right? Yeah. And uh, maybe that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not advocating censorship, but I think it's important to understand that it wasn't just a Curly and 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 his group that were insensitive to someone who of limited mental capacities. It was basically in society. You know, society uh, you know, could use this as, as you say, something to laugh about, despite what Steinbeck wanted. 
And, and an interesting thing that I caught there at Monster Bash, there was a lecture from an author, I, I believe his name, Gregory Meng, who speaks every year at Monster Bash. And I only caught the end of his lecture this weekend, which he presented just before. And one of the things that he mentioned was that they had actually filmed a scene that was in the book that just before George kills Lenny, Lenny has this, uh, you know, horrible, haunting vision of, I believe, his aunt uh, coming as a ghost, telling him that he's worthless. And then a giant rabbit also berating him and belittling him. And so they filmed a scene, you know, with trick photography of both the ghost and the giant rabbit, the person in the rabbit costume. And they felt that perhaps, you know, that would ruin the serious nature of the film, that someone would see this and just start laughing at the giant rabbit, That especially if they might have the wrong audience presenting this film. And so it was a very wise move to remove that. Right. It's, it's some, put it this way, sometimes being sparse is better than trying to investigate the inner workings of, of characters. And it also makes more of a universality that, you know, these characters represent archetypes that are bigger than themselves. If When you get everything, when you hand everybody everything on a silver platter, it diminishes. It's, you know, it's faster, like faster type of a thing. that it, it, Which it, is part it, of the reason why uh, characters in Shakespeare's plays or even going or going back to even to the the theater of, of Greek tragedy, much more can be invested in every generation. And we should say, of Mice and Men has been has been produced very often since the 1930s, uh, most famously in the Steppenwolf theater production with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich, who took that and made it into a a pretty highly acclaimed film in the 90s, starring those same two roles. Again. Um, you know the the uh, George Siegel played uh, George <laughs> in a, a TV version in the late sixties. I should also mention Broderick Crawford originated the the character on Broadway, and Broderick Crawford also before he became the uh, the Highway Patrol leader in that wonderful television series the nineteen fifties. He sort of uh, also was uh, made a career out of playing big dumb characters whether it was in Born Yesterday or in Larceny Incorporated, that was sort of was uh, Broderick Crawford's stock and trade. Uh, he played a much different character in All the King's Men, but again, the big lumbering fellow. But the point I'm trying to get to is this character of Lenny uh, was in a way a, uh, a a great boon for Lon Chaney Jr. Who yeah, that I was think... one of the things that Greg Mank mentioned as well, that his, he was almost a washed-up actor at this point. He'd already appeared amazingly in 50 films by the time he made this. And this was really his big break. You know, I'm looking here, Yitzchok, at some of the posters that the film generated. And of course, you know, you look at, you go to different eras, you know, when it was re-released in various stages in the 1940s. And uh, I think one of, you know, eventually, here's some of the blurb from the poster. The picture Hollywood said could never be made. And again, Hal Roach, who was, uh, of course, we've talked about him and his his role in the comedies. By, by that time, he was actually getting away from comedy. He actually made another movie with which had Lon Chaney in it the same year uh, or the next year was One Million B.C. So oh. he, he was he was getting away from the comedy world and trying different different genres. Well, well as he says, a mighty novel, a sensational stage success. Now, the year's most important picture. 
of Mice and Men. Interesting, you know, Betty Field's performance was obviously a big hit with the with viewers because in this poster, her face is in color center and there's almost like a word balloon coming out of her mouth saying, I'm decent, I tell you. Nobody's got the right to call me names. Well, you look, I've, 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 without seeing the film for about 40 years or so, I think we've done a, uh, uh, a good job uh, talking about it. And perhaps, as you say, we are recommending it for at least a view of what was a piece of uh, Hollywood history, a piece of Americana history. But also something timeless because, you know, there, there are a lot of films that are historical in nature of to present something in its time period. That it's, and, that, and that was the big question that I had earlier was, you know, who's going to tell the timeless story that takes place in this era? I, I don't know if we and, and it doesn't even have to be a novel. It could be a film, could be a television show. Steinbeck was able to make a statement without effort. He, you know, he presented particularly, you know, that African-American character as the lonely intellectual, you know. So he he broke so many stereotypes with this character, but he presented a real human being. And all of these characters are so real that none of them are are caricatures. Let's talk about a little bit about Slim, played by Charles Bickford, one of my favorite character actors who... Uh, you know, I don't think he ever mailed in a performance. He has an intensity and uh, sort of a, um, unlike other, uh, you know, it's, you, you can't typecast him. He's somebody who can play evil. He could play sympathetic, sort of a little bit like Arthur Kennedy, but I think with a little, even even a greater intensity. Uh, it's Charles Bigford is slim. Let's end uh, tonight talking a little bit about Burgess Meredith, who, um, you know, this was a film that... Uh, was one of his first films. He was, in the making of this film, he was already 32 years old. He had already, I guess, done a number of theater at this point. He uh, was had a, a great range as a Incredible character actor. Range. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, you know, most people probably know him as Mickey, uh, Rocky Balboa's corner man, the manager who stirred Rocky to become the a fighter to take on Apollo Creed, or a uh, character. Yes, Mickey. he played a Jewish character. Although Burgess Meredith was very far from being a Jew, right. um, or uh, the Penguin. But then there was the Twilight Zone appearances, especially the, the two, right? The two Twilight Zone appearances that he was in. Yes, yeah, time enough. So, but he's someone who I think um, is underappreciated, though. Really, so all um, of these characters are such a wide range. You wouldn't. You would hardly know this was the same actor if you didn't know it was him playing all of these different characters. And, and considering, you know, his, this, this distinct aspect of himself, he was able really to inhabit many, many uh, different parts. I have to say, you know, when I think about you know, Batman's rogues gallery, I sort of think that he's really the best of all of them. Yeah. Burgess Meredith, really, you could tell how much he loved doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and we've talked about the various Catwoman's and the different actors who played Mr. Freeze, including Otto Preminger, I, I think you know, the most consistent was probably, you know, uh, Burgess as as the as the Penguin. There's something to say when you commit yourself to a role, even when it's Keech. You know, it's back to Lon Chaney committing to the role of the Wolfman in five years and and keeping that storyline when all the other characters lost it at some point. 
but the, but that character remained really the central. Once once the Wolfman entered the the Universal Cinematic Universe, it became central to really any film it was in more than than the others. And 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 Cheney also, though he played all the other monsters, he played the Frankenstein monster, he played the mummy several times, and he was the son of Dracula, Count Alucard. So. He really uh, he covered the, the only one he never was was the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, I see. <laughs> sort of was he sort of was before that was sort of after his time. Although he was still making films, so I don't he wasn't working for Universal at that time. I think the Grapes of Wrath and A Mice and Men are two films that are wonderfully true to Steinbeck's vision, considering the limitations of the Hayes Code and just in terms of the economy of, of style and time. And I think both of them really are a testament to what Steinbeck wanted to do. And as you say, Yitzchak, uh, we are in a period that is perhaps not as devastating as the period of the Depression. But it's definitely, we are going through shocks in our society and our communities and I think films like these, although, as you say, you don't want necessarily, <laughs> they aren't going to make you laugh. You're not at all going to, to walk out of these films touched by happiness, but I think they will make you understand the inequities in society, the difficulties we all have in, in relating, and the importance of trying to break through and understand the other person. I, I think one thing is that where the story ends, you have this ambiguity of what's going to happen to George afterwards. Now, obviously, he's not going; his dream is not going to come true. But what did he do? Was that a world that he lived in, which was a contemporary world where vigilante justice was the norm, or was he someone who is now going to spend time in prison for murder? What What did he do? Was was he was he the owner just put down a sick dog or was he you're raising a good point i i i think you know as you know there was almost like a law within itself on these ranches and in these areas i think that was part of what steinbeck was trying to portray that you know these little microcosms of of society that were existing there he hands the gun over to the police officer but he hands it over with 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 a, uh, a resignation that perhaps he is yeah. now going to have to go. But, but he he covers it up, so it's and he he was holding the gun with a cloth the whole time to try to avoid any fingerprints or anything it would seem. And he hands it over with the cloth. Uh, maybe so. Maybe it's indicating that the police officer shot him. You know, and he's and he's you know meaning he did the police officer's work. And he's going to get off scot free, and maybe even go back to work at the at the ranch. Who knows? And be able to make that dream come true. Nobody knows. Ambiguity is actually a hallmark of great art. Yes. Uh, the Mona Lisa smile. What does it mean? What? Where does that ending take you? It doesn't have to be wrapped up in that neat package. And I think if anything is a an indicator that we need to stop. I think that statement definitely is. Watch your step on the way out, everybody. We'll catch you again next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.